0: Damn, people are really out here getting married, huh? Incredibly. That's wild.
1: All I'm saying is it just really could not be me or my entire family. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Hey. Hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Nathaniel. This is to be completely transparent. Welcome back, everyone! Thank you so much for listening today. Today we have a very special guest, Miss Lisa Combs, who I have known for over a decade at this point. So I'll start by having her introduce herself. Um, so, Lisa, tell us a little bit more about you.
2: Thank you both for having me. It's really exciting to be in community with both of you. I've known you both for a long time, so super exciting. Uh, My name is Lisa Delacruz Combs. I use she, her, and Shaw pronouns. Shaw pronouns are the pronouns that are used in the Philippines. And I am a second year PhD student in the Higher Education Student Affairs Program at Ohio State University in the Department of Ed Studies My research interests specifically focus on race, racism, multiraciality in higher education contexts, and then post-structural feminist perspectives, which if you're ever interested in talking about that, I'm your person. But yeah, I'm really excited to be here with you today.
0: Yes, we are so excited, Lisa. Like, I don't think you understand we were talking about this beforehand. Like, we are just so pumped to have somebody who is, like, a legitimate subject matter expert that we can, like, ask all the questions and pick your brain and and dive really deep into this topic. So, super pumped. I have a lot of questions. I'm excited to ask them. But, as always, we must start with the hot takes. Um, Don't want to get too ahead of myself. So, I will begin with – a lukewarm take, I will admit, um, but one that I do feel strongly about, and that is that I don't think that being a vegetarian is that hard. I think that anybody who wants to be a vegetarian and has the access and financial means to do so can do it, and it's not that hard. So that's my lukewarm hot take.
2: And I agree. I have done this before. Like I've given up meat for extended periods of time. Definitely prefer eating meat, but I think it can be done.
1: I am I'm in, I'm indifferent. Interesting. Okay. Here's okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's it's a little He's difficult.
0: moderate again. He said both sides again.
1: <laughs> if this was a vlog, people would see how angry I am right now.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. I cut um, you off.
1: Absolutely livid. But I think the allergens makes it a little tougher. Um with soy, fish, nuts. Yeah, um,
0: that's fair. I do eat to, a lot of soy.
1: Yeah, and I and soy, I haven't had any like terrible reaction to soy, mm-hmm. but given that it came up in a blood test, I'm like, well, I don't want to suddenly increase my intake mm-hmm. of soy. True. But I mean, I, I probably could, and I have thought about it like numerous times before, but have not decided to make that jump. But this was a this was a solid lukewarm take. I feel like Thank that's you.
2: also really valid about the allergies. Like when I think about yeah. like programming in higher ed, I feel like allergies is the last thing that people think about. Like they're not thinking like there's a sign in the building that I take classes in that are like absolutely no nuts in here. People can like die mm. from allergies. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I feel like that's that is like so true. that's a privilege in itself to not have food allergies, I feel like.
0: Totally. Yeah. I mean I have all sorts of other allergies. Right. Like environmental but I am so so grateful I don't have food allergies so I guess all right I'll put that as a caveat if you have allergies I guess maybe it is more challenging but thank
1: you Sarah I appreciate that
0: (laughs) I'm understanding okay (laughs) okay all right Nathaniel what's what's your hot take this week okay
1: so unlike most weeks I actually thought about this weeks and weeks ago
0: phenomenal proud of you
1: i know not 15 minutes before not during you didn't have to edit out a three-minute pause So i was gonna great. say normally
0: we, we sit here I, <laughs> I scroll through twitter i wait for a minute and then you guys don't even know because i just cut that shit out but you didn't anyway. have
1: to i mean i didn't want you to expose it like that
0: hey we're transparent here we're all about you're transparency right. You're right, you're i right, can't wait right. to hear this hot take bring it bring it bring it
1: okay so here it is given the choice Okay, let me, let's go back. Let's, this is general over the span of like my life, not like current pandemic times. However, sitting outside at a restaurant, trash, I don't wanna do it. I'm never gonna choose it. I'm always gonna pick inside every time. What? Okay, okay, I know, I, I know y'all are shook, but hear me out. It's not fun. There's bees, there's bugs, there's, I'm sweating or I'm shivering. Stuff is flying off the table because it's windy. It has to be, like, the most perfect, perfect, perfect weather day. It would have to be, like, a October 27th. But for some reason, it's 72 degrees. And there's just a very slight breeze. But then bugs have decided to migrate. Like, that's the only time I would pick outside. Voluntarily. I, I The only reason I do it is because all the homies want to do it. And I'm not going to be that person. So then I, I say perfect outside sounds great yeah because i don't voice my needs
2: i'm gonna have to disagree with you on this that's i don't know if there's much more to say (laughs) because
0: he said because i don't voice my needs sorry (laughs) (laughs) wow um lisa i'm with you i'm not i'm not into it (laughs) I I know.
1: I'm going to get a lot of hate for that one.
0: I love sitting outside unless it's Mm -hmm. like actively precipitating. Yeah, that's fair. I mean,
2: there are times where it's better to sit inside. Like when it's really hot. I can't like way, way too hot.
0: Sure.
1: What is way, way too hot, though? Like Like 90s. Yeah. I wouldn't
0: sit outside. Agreed. That's fair.
1: But you're sitting outside at 52.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, hell no. With a jacket, a jacket, a beanie. A solid jacket and a, and a beanie, I would do 52, maybe. Yeah, I'm sorry that I have jarred y'all this morning, but that's it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow. Give me the indoor seating. That booth over there, that's the one.
0: Okay, hot take for sure. Lisa, please share f- your hot take. I feel like those. I have so
2: many. I don't even know which one to give. I have one that was inspired by my conversation with Sarah before we started. And then I have like one that's food related and then one that's like Scorpio related. Do you have a preference?
1: You're I You already know you asked Sarah that. Yeah. Just, <laughs> Which one? Just rattle them.
2: Okay. I feel like my definition of hearty foods is a hot take. Okay. And like Ryan is always like my partner is always like that's not a hearty food. I'm like no, this is what hearty is. So I Define hearty foods as having to be goopy in some way. So, for example, like chili or chicken pot pie, like it's got to have some like goop to it. Does that make any sense? And Ryan is like, no, hearty can also be a steak. And I'm like, a steak is not hearty. It is chili, like chunky soup. Like, it's got to be like, there's got to be some goop to it. And like, everyone disagrees with me on this, but I believe it to be true. so that, is, you know, like when, do you think, a, do you think steak is hearty? I don't, this is
0: a, I, don't I know. like this.
1: I'm a little shook because I, <laughs> I think I agree with you because when I think like if I want to go out and get a nice steak, I usually am not thinking of the word hearty.
0: It's not but hearty. I don't know I don't if think. it's
1: like goop that I'm associating <laughs> with.
0: Maybe goop is not the right word. <laughs> but I get, but I get that as like a classification with like the chilies and the chicken pot pies. Like that is a good descriptor. That's yes, it's a good descriptor. Right. Interesting. It's like filling. I don't know that I've yeah. ever thought about this.
1: I have not. Would like,
2: I
0: feel like this oh, time of year makes me think of it. Yeah, that's fair, like fall foods. I feel like when I think hearty, I think of anything that is like warm and really filling. So like that encapsulates your definition, but mm. I think it's a little bit broader than that. So like I think of sure things like stuffing. That's not really goopy. But like stuffing to me is hearty oh. because it's like it is a little though. I
2: get. Yeah. Goopy. Because it has sometimes goopy. it has like gravy. And like that's true. It's still got like a I hate to use that the word that people don't like, but it's still got like a it's still moist stuffing. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> I'm, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. It depends who made the stuffing. I'm just saying. Did, did Karen make the stuffing? Who made it? <laughs> no, that's true. That's, 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 that's true. going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be honest with you. See,
0: I was about to unintentionally call out my family and be like, our stuffing isn't that goofy.
1: <laughs> Sarah, you can't. I'm sorry. Sarah, just don't, don't say that out loud. We already know. <laughs> <laughs> we already know. But
2: yeah, oh. but that's one of them. um Another one that Sarah and I were talking about is like, can you be on a podcast if you don't listen to podcasts?
0: Proof in the pudding right here.
2: Right. Like Sarah and I were talking about how we don't listen to podcasts. Really. The Daniel
0: doesn't even listen to this podcast, Bro, sh- let alone <laughs> any other one. So,
1: Okay, don't be an asshole. I just listen to it Wait,
0: <laughs> When have you listened to an episode in full?
1: It's been a few weeks.
0: Yeah, huh mm-hmm. It's been <laughs> a few, but
1: like I said, I, late. I, I, okay. I I've never been a podcast. My attention span. Some people love yeah, me it. Either. They'll clean all Sunday I and know. listen to like 12 episodes. I'm like, that's so impressive. Yes. You probably learned a lot.
2: I know. That's uh, that's how I think my partner knows so much because he, po- he listens to your podcast every week. He listens so nice. to the McDowell's, to drama every week. And I'm like, wow, like he is a way better friend than me. <laughs> And I'm, like, over here, like, I, mean, I need to be better. I mean, I listen, just not as much. Yeah.
0: Podcasts aren't for everybody. It, like, I, I, we were talking about this. Like, I go through moods where I'm, like, into listening to podcasts. And sometimes I just, like, stop for, like, eight months. So I, I understand. Mm, but That makes sense. I feel like you can be a podcaster and not listen <laughs> to podcasts. Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah, Why right? Not? It's fine. We'll be better.
2: Yeah. The other – okay, so the last one. The last hot take was around, since it's Scorpio season, yes. what, starting yesterday, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are different types of Scorpios. Totally. Like, there are, like – because I'm a Scorpio, and I think people sometimes are surprised because – well, I think people are surprised because they view Scorpios to be dark, which, for one, I do have a dark side. I just think people don't see it as much. <laughs> I still like listening to – sad breakup songs on the floor so i'm uh, definitely have a, a dark 100%. side with all the lights off <laughs> yeah but like i think there's a thanksgiving scorpio and a halloween scorpio so like halloween scorpios are like spooky and like so thanksgiving scarp- scorpios are like lovey and like full of intense gratitude but it gets kind of scary in their own way
0: that is so, I think so good that is such right a- wow I fully and here's-
1: i
2: feel like there are different types
1: Here's where Lisa agree. and Sarah break off to do their own episode. Oh I will God, see that's... you guys next time.
0: <laughs> no, um, I I love that description. I genuinely do. That's so good. I'm gonna start using that. Because I do feel like Scorpio is the one sign that like I have a hard time conceptualizing because I feel like every Scorpio I meet is different. So that mm-hmm. that's a good way to classify. I really like that.
2: Yeah, they're all intense. Like yes. we love to be intense, yes. but they're just intense different in different ways. What's your
0: rising sign, Lisa?
2: My rising sign is, is it, I think it's Pisces. Oh, of course. Yeah. And then my moon is Sagittarius.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah. That checks out. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, fascinating. I love this. Yeah. Can we do an astrology <laughs> episode, Nathaniel? You'll le- Y'all should. You'll With learn a lot. Yes,
1: and I'll sit here quietly.
0: You'll learn a lot. It'll be <laughs> you fun. You will not learn a lot. It's, yeah. it's actually fun. I love
1: learning. Yeah. But like I said, I'll, I'll sit here <laughs> quietly for the most part. Oh, my God.
0: Well, those are good hot takes. But speaking of learning, let's do that. Let's learn something today. Yeah. So, Lisa, we know that you are really into your studies with multiracial identities, mono racism, the connections and distinctions between the two. I would love for you to start off by kind of giving a background on what exactly your research interests are and give maybe some definitions so that we all can all kind yeah. of start this conversation off on on a similar footing sure yeah
2: so that's i'm really glad that you asked that because i think a lot of times when people hear multiracial they think of multicultural mm. like that definition so like multiracial as in there's a lot of different races represented in this one community or in this one group, when multiracial, and let me first say to like, a lot of these terms are contested. So people will identify in different ways. And I think that's something that's similar across minoritized communities, like a lot of terms are contested. But so some some folks will identify as multiracial, which means that you identify with more than one racial identity. So it could be multiple too. Like it doesn't have to be two, which is another misconception. So like for me, for example, I identify as multiracial. My dad is white. My mom is Filipina. And I can also choose to identify as biracial because I have two races. Um, but there are some people – so multiracial is more inclusive because let's say there's a person that has one parent that's mixed black black and white and then their their other parent is Japanese mm-hmm. so now they have 3 racial identities so that's multiracial if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to just be two um and then sometimes people identify as mixed so they'll say like i'm mixed um which is pretty synonymous it's just again contested people just have different ways of identifying some people will even be like really specific so i have a friend that identifies as mexican and filipina and she identifies as mexipina Or there may be someone that identifies as Black and Asian, so they'll identify as Blasian. It's just people choose different terms. And this is the advice I would give to anybody is to ask how people identify and what terms they want to claim as part of their identity. But that's a little bit about what it means to be multiracial. And it's interesting because so monoracism is the unique system of oppression, or I would I would actually refer to it as a system of power that operates under the belief or the paradigm that people can only have one racial identity. Mm. And it's what's really interesting about this term is that my doctoral advisor actually coined the term in 2010. Dr. Mark Johnson Guerrero coined it with Dr. Kevin Nadal in this piece about multiracial microaggressions. So it's been over ten years since they've created the term, but not a lot of people know that it's a term that exists. Uh, but it definitely, in my opinion, from my, I would say from my professional opinion, but also from my lived experiences, mono racism is a system of a power that exists. Examples of it are like, like in high school when you have to fill out demographic forms and you can only choose one. That's mm-hmm. a systemic form of mono racism because it's like on a form you have to like you choose, you have to feel like you have to choose one part of you instead of like existing as your whole identity um and the way i often describe that to people is like when i have to choose something like that my heart falls into my stomach and then starts beating inside of my stomach that's the feeling that's what it feels like mm-hmm. so that's like an example of monoracism um, another example is like with from legal perspective. so like the supreme court case loving versus virginia it's been just over 50 years since interracial marriage was even considered legal in the United Mm -hmm. States, which is wild, wild. which I know isn't specifically multiraciality, but it's very strongly connected to the mixed race community. And every year on June 12th, the anniversary of Loving vs. Virginia, the the mixed community actually like comes together and celebrates Loving Day, which is – it's actually really cool. It's a really powerful day. But before I move on, the one thing that I do want to name is that I think what's hard or complicated and beautiful about – multiraciality is that it is not a monolithic experience right so like what it means for me to be mixed Asian and white is going to be really different than what it means for someone who's mixed with two minoritized identities like if someone's like black and Latinx that experience is going to be really different than mine and I actually think now that I'm like I haven't verbalized this before but I actually think that that's a good thing to recognize because I think all minoritized identities should not be essentialized to one experience. And oftentimes it is. And the mixed race community is an example of like how, there just can't be one lived experience of mm-hmm. what it means to be mixed. It's impossible. And I think that's true for other identities too. But that's one thing that I want to specifically name, especially with my own privilege as someone who's mixed with whiteness. I have a proximity to whiteness that's different. I identify as a lighter skinned person of color. So I also benefit from the system of colorism. There's just a lot, a lot there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was a really, really good intro. I think it gives us a lot to to work from. I think when I read your article about this, and and I was starting to come up with some questions and and think about how we were going to discuss this topic, the first thing I I thought of because this is a newer topic to me, the the nuances between all of these terms is is newer to me, and so the thing that I thought of was, I have in the past heard many folks who identify as biracial say that they don't feel X enough for this group or Y enough for this other group. And they feel like this sort of disconnect and this, you know, it's difficult for them to to sort of process how to to find their own space in either of these communities or both. Um, and I was curious, do you think that is an example of mono-racism in action or, or what, what does that you know, phenomenon or experience mean within this context.
2: Yeah, wow, Sarah, that's a good question. So, if you're interested in reading more about this, there's actually a piece from 2020. Dr. Stephen Quay and Dr. Ariel Ashley coined this term called "not feeling racially enough." So, the term is like "racially enough," and mm-hmm. what I was I would just say about is, to
1: ask you about that. Literally, were you? Yeah, <laughs> when, when we were eating ice cream.
2: Oh yeah, we talked about, <laughs> about it, but about yeah, that. because I think so. I think that not feeling racially enough is strongly connected to monoracism and it's a symptom of monoracism. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that not feeling racially enough can transgress minoritized communities. So like for example, one of the authors of that piece identifies as a transracial adoptee meaning that she was um, adopted by parents who do not have the same racial identity as her. And so she also didn't feel racially enough because she didn't have the proximity to her racial identity growing up. And it's actually really interesting. There are a lot of communities where transracial adoptees and multiracial people Build coalitions together. Um, that we recognize the difference in our experiences, right? Like they're different mm-hmm. experiences, and how can we build solidarity across in between? And then the other author of that piece identifies as monoracial, but he also talks about like growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and not Mm -hmm. feeling racially enough in that sense. So there there are so many different experiences that can cause someone not to feel racially enough. And what I would actually say is that has to do with the rigidity of racial categories that have been created by the system of white supremacy. So white supremacy, like people in power have created these categories and these systems with rigidity in order to pit minoritized groups against one another. So therefore, they're competing for resources rather than disrupting the systems of whiteness. And then it just continues to reinforce itself. And that's why another something else, another research interest of mine is like what it means to build solidarity without essentializing communities because I think what happens when we try to coalition build is people are like, well, your experience isn't the same as mine. And that is so true. And it's something that we need to recognize. But what does it mean to still connect across in between and not let white supremacy win as best as we can? I'm not saying that we're going to disrupt white supremacy in, in my lifetime, but I think there are things that we could do to at least, I don't know, poke holes in it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: These are all great examples of how this works in action and like all of the I feel like for people who either experience forms of racism or or are interested in talking about things like this but aren't studying it it as deeply have a lot of the same questions and the part that we don't get to really dive into is really how interconnected everything is because we know a lot Mm -hmm. of things are interconnected we know um, how white supremacy impacts so much, like, globally. And from my perspective, like, speaking as a, a Black person, I hear so frequently um, a lot of this conversation with multiracial or biracial people and how society views you. So if, you know, the topic of passingness
0: mm-hmm.
1: or primarily Black and white people, um, if, yep. you're, if you are mixed with those two, I've seen the arguments which you were talking about where some people say you you can't really claim the other side because you look black and Mm -hmm. in this society if you look black like you literally are black like you are the world is viewing you as black and you are receiving Uh how black people are treated or I mean theoretically you can be mixed and be of darker skin tone than someone who is fully black which you'd touched upon like the how this kind of relates to the colorism piece Uh but it's interesting just hearing how passionately people talk about not being able to identify the way you want to and then what what Tiger Woods great example Uh (laughs) he got he got a lot of a lot of heat for kind of talking about the other parts of his identity because people right. were like, well, why doesn't this man want to just be black? Like he's one mm-hmm. of, he's literally like the greatest golfer of all time or one of them. Like he has transcended the sport and people felt like he had something against his blackness because he identified these other parts, which just like you said, you can't put ev- everyone's experience is not the same. Yep. There probably are times where someone, because of what white supremacy has done, has been like, okay, like. If I can be less black, maybe that's beneficial to me. I'm sure that that has been an internalized thought at some point. And then for other people, it really might be all of these parts of my identity are beautiful and awesome, and I want to talk about them. Sure. So we don't really know, but right. from an outside perspective, yeah, those people have gotten a lot of judgment. So like, yeah. I, you know, I guess you can't tell you can't tell anyone how to think, but like, what are your thoughts on? you know, how someone can reconcile with society's view of these things.
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is so interesting. I think one thing that I want to name, and I kind of named it earlier, is this anti-essentialism piece that, like, the multiracial experience cannot be mo- like a monolith. It's not the same across yeah. different identities. And I mean, that that draws from crit- critical race theory. Like that's a tenet of critical race theory. And I want to specifically name, so I can't speak to this from my own lived experience in terms of what it means to be mixed with blackness. I don't have that experience. What I do think is important to name though is the historical legacy of what it means to be mixed with blackness in the United States. So like, it's really important. I'm like- Something that I've been thinking a lot about since the – since the summer I took a student activism course is um, around, like, what it means to acknowledge the history and the context of something. Specifically, I've been thinking about that in the realm of policing, but we won't get into that right now. But mm-hmm. um, in particular, it's important to recognize – slavery in this context it's important to recognize the one drop rule in particular which all of those historical legacies shape the way that folks that are mixed with blackness may identify or choose to identify or the way that people choose to perceive them because of that like historical landscape that's like a little bit different than what it means to be mixed with other racial identities if that makes sense in terms of how someone identifies when so like some of the examples that you were that you were naming around with Tiger Woods in particular which is interesting because there are some scholars that have done some writing about Tiger Woods like in particular which is fascinating to me um I like when people connect back to like pop culture and things like that but um I think that those are examples of monoracism like if Tiger Woods wants to identify as mixed then he should be able to if he doesn't want to then that's fine too but if he wants to identify as mixed then like he should, do you know what I mean? That's, that's my opinion Mm -hmm. on it. And I think you can identify, I think there can be a both and here, right? Like you can choose to identify as a multiracial or mixed person. And that may not be the way that society views you. And those things Mm -hmm. can coexist. I think there's a Mm -hmm. difference though, between like me, like, let's say I said, Hey, I'm mixed. And then someone says, no, you're not. It's like, no, I just told you though. Like, there's a huge difference between that and then people's, like, first perception of me. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting because I think the way that I've noticed monoracism, I I could speak for my own lived experience the most, is the exhaustion in my choices. And what I mean by that is, Mm -hmm. like, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I wear this, are people going to think I'm white? If I talk about this musical artist who you both know, who I shall not name at this point in time, are people going to think I'm white? If I don't order – the like Asian dish, when we go out, are people going to think I'm white? If I don't speak Tagalog, the language in in the Philippines, are people going to think I'm white? It's like that exhaustion and I'm like over it. <laughs> so over it. And I wonder, I don't know if other mixed people feel like that. I mean, I know some do, I can't speak for all of them, but I think that's where I notice it the most. Um, and the other thing I want to point out too is it's so funny to me to hear people say like, oh, you're an expert on this. I should claim that. It's really hard as a woman of color to claim that, I'm going to be honest. But I mm-hmm. also want to talk about, too, like, lived experiences can also be a form of expertise,
0: and I think that's important to Absolutely. name, too. Absolutely. No, I, I love that you you threw that in there. I think I love all of the guests we've had because I, I would consider them all to be experts in their own – you know, lanes here and and the things that they talked about. So I'm glad you called that out because I I totally agree. But I wanted to touch quickly on something I think is related to the, you know, the points you were just making, both of you. And that is the racial socialization Mm -hmm. aspect of this. And again, I, I read your article this morning, Lisa, and I was like taking all these furious notes and I was like, oh my gosh, these are like, these topics are so important. And I really wanted to touch on this because I think that, as a white person i have never had to experience this like i was thinking about the examples that your study participants gave and and we'll link the we'll link the article folks don't worry we'll share it with everybody um but i was thinking about all the examples that that your participants were naming about you know their experiences and what their parents told them Mm -hmm. about their identity and and how to move through the world and how they may or may not be perceived and never once did I have that. And I recognize that that is an intense privilege and I never had to wake up and have that choice exhaustion that you're explaining, Lisa. And that, so this is just a concept that I think I could benefit to learn more about. And I think that other folks who, who may not have had this experience or may not have had, you know, exposure to these sorts of conversations also need to learn about, because I think it puts into perspective just how, Challenging it is to exist day to day as a non-white person in you know whatever identity you know you fall in that's outside of the the whiteness, right? Like it is it is challenging just because of these socialized concepts. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that and and shed some light onto that for those of us who who really haven't had to experience it.
2: Yeah, that's a great. I love that you asked this too because in another like, a book chapter. There's this book. Um, it's, like, a multiracial experiences book, and it has some narratives in it, and then also things related to supporting multiracial people in higher ed. And I have a chapter in there about intergener- intergenerational reflections on multiraciality, and it actually starts with this story that I think about a lot. I was a kid, and I could, I could, like, picture it all in my head, like, all too well. Like, I could I could feel it. So, I, we were having dinner, and my parents, like, had a dinner going back to hearty food um there was steak on the on the plate and then there was like cut up mangoes and I w- remember like looking down on the plate and being like I wonder if any any other kid on the street is eating steak and mangoes for dinner tonight like is anybody else eating this because like steak felt like <laughs> I don't want to like uh, stereotype but it felt like a white dad thing to like grill a steak in the backyard (laughs) and then my mom like mangoes are super popular in the philippines and she like cut them up honestly like that's like a common thing like in like asian communities too that we talk about is like how moms just suddenly show up with cut up fruit it's like wait where did that come from but anyways so i could like feel and like picture the like vibrant colors of the mangoes and like the contrast of the steak and i was like like I obviously as a kid, I wasn't thinking this, but when I look back on it, I'm like that plate is literally my identity. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm steak and mangoes. That's me. That's literally me. And I guess I'm calling to this cause I, I always wonder like what it would have looked like if my parents would have talked to me about what that means. Like while we were eating dinner mm-hmm. around the table, what if they would have talked to me about it? I've, I'm trying to give my parents a lot more grace because they didn't have the tools to talk to me about that. And I wish they would. I wish that was a thing because it would have been like really cool to like learn about my racial identity as a kid and to be able to reflect upon it then and now Um, because now I'm doing all this like unpacking and trying to remember things from when I was a kid. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting because there's a lot more resources out there now. There's a book about that talks about how to raise multiracial kids that I would actually, like, recommend for any listeners that are raising multiracial kids. And it's so – it's interesting because, like, I'm in community with a three-year-old multiracial girl, and she is – y'all, she's absolutely incredible. And she is, like, the physical embodiment of who I'm writing for. Like, she is why Mm -hmm. I do this work. Not just her, but, like, mixed-race kids. Like, they're the – like, that's, like, the future. I was telling Nathaniel this, but, like, the census – in 2020 like reported back a 270 something in percent increase in multiracial people in the United States. It's really contested wow. as to why there that is. Like some people are like, "Oh, like is that really growth or is it also like people feel more confident in claiming their mixed race identity?" But I think there's a lot. I like that you talked about racial socialization, Sarah, because I think just like starting those conversations is like a huge first step. And I'm not saying that you have to be perfect as a parent when you're having those conversations, but just even starting it would have made like a huge difference to me. And even seeing like Mm -hmm. the reflection back of mixed race people on TV has been really interesting. I just did. um, I have a manuscript under review now about mixed race TV characters and young adult TV shows, which is like, fascinating. There's like a lot there too, but just seeing yourself reflected in the media in different ways is, um, and I think that's true for monoracial people of color, for folks with other minoritized identities as well. I'd be so curious to see how that's affecting people's socialization in terms of their identity. But yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm curious also about the term racially ambiguous. Is this something that, uh, a term that you use at all in your work? From my perspective, I, I hear this usually In a negative connotation, Mm -hmm. depending on who is giving those vibes off. Sure. That's
0: interesting because I feel like I typically perceive it positively. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Really? That you feel like it's normally negative.
1: I feel like it's negative because what I normally hear is someone who, in in scenarios that I'm thinking, it's people who are fully white and they have... They, they are mm. portraying themselves mm. in a way where it's like are you not <laughs> yes. white and then they're yeah they're like weirdly benefiting from that but like not mm-hmm. but then they can just not be that and sure. that's that's the direction i'm thinking um and i know that that's not necessary like in that case like mono racism would not apply All right it's just a <laughs> this is just something that has come to my mind, yeah. And I'm just curious. You're getting, you're. Your,
2: this is so interesting. You're getting into some some interesting things. So, um, I've definitely used the term racially ambiguous in my writing before. I don't know if I've like, cause I'm not the one who's like conce- who has conceptualized that. And like I said, there's a huge difference okay. between like conceptualizing something academically and then like. It being, like, a lived experience. Um, There are times where that overlaps and times when that's different. It's interesting because, like, I love that you both have different perceptions of what what it means to be racially ambiguous. That that kind of um, points to the tensions of, like, how complicated any work related to race is because everybody has different definitions of what things mean. To your point about being racial – Like, I've been called racially ambiguous before. And it's it's interesting because, like, I remember in high school, the first time I was called racially ambiguous was that someone said that because I'm racially ambiguous, I would be the first person killed in, like, a horror movie. Like, if we were all in a horror movie, right? So that was, like, that's not really great. I know. Like, that's – it's
0: That's kind of fucked. What? Right.
2: It's, like, really messed up. But those are, like – That's an example of maybe it being a negative thing. But, Nathaniel, you are mm-hmm. getting at this point – like people that are claiming to be a person of color when they're not. That that is complicated, I think, across the board in the media, but it's real it's like something that's actually been like on an uptick in higher education. There's like been a ton of faculty members, like you can like read it. Like if you like look at like the Chronicle of Higher Education, there are like tons of articles about like faculty members that have like claimed being a person of color when they're not in order to like get more citations in order to like get more credibility when they're writing about t- topics related to systems of power privilege and oppression and it's like messed up it's so messed up and it's interesting because I mean I don't want to mention Rachel Dolezal because I don't want to give her more um, <laughs> she doesn't need it she doesn't need more airtime.
1: but basically like Look, black twitter had fun with that right, for a really long time like, and <laughs> I was included <laughs>
2: She doesn't need more airtime you know what i mean but i mean that's like something that's a person that someone brings up in these conversations a lot of like and it's interesting because like folks that have claimed a person of color identity have tried to use the term transracial when i just explained to you what that means for the adoptee community Mm -hmm. and the adoptee community Mm -hmm. is like what what is going on like we like that's been a term that they've used as a like form of empowerment and now it's like being co-opted by people who are trying to claim being a person of color but that's a that's a I would call that like a different complexity and a different nuance it's definitely related to multiraciality and monoracism but I don't know that it's like obviously they're different but it's a it's a complication and one that is like incredibly frustrating it's it's a it's incredibly frustrating I think for monoracial people for multiracial people of color like it's it's incredible it's just not okay.
0: As a white person, I cannot even put myself in a position where I'd be like, you know what sounds like a good idea, pretending like I'm not white. Like I don't, I just can't wrap my head around it at all. But I do think it's interesting the different perceptions. And Nathaniel, I think once you explained like how you perceive the the racially amb- ambiguous concept and like how you've seen it in action, like I think the positive thing that I have seen has been, I mean. I'm perceiving it as positive. I'm not sure that it's, you know, felt that way. But the way that I have seen it is when people talk about like beauty and physical like attractiveness and it not being like a white beauty standard and being like, oh, that person is stunning. They're racially ambiguous. I'm not really sure like what their, what their identity or their heritage or their background is, but they have like some, uh, some of these amazing features. And like, I don't want that to be misconstrued as like that like exotic or fetishization type of thing. Like I feel like when I have heard it, it has been genuine. I just find them really beautiful and they don't have, you know, white Western beauty standards. And I think that's great. Like, so it's just interesting the different avenues in which that can be, that can be used. Mm -hmm. But I do think it, you know, it is absolutely wild that there are folks out there who try to. I think co-opt is the best word co-opt the experiences, the culture, the even beauty and and physical appearance of a group that they are not a part of while that group is still actively oppressed mm-hmm. for having those same qualities like that is just it wild to lot. me, yeah, it, it does happen a lot.
1: it does did you hear about the drama with Jesse Nelson?
0: Yes,
2: I actually did hear about that, yeah, I saw it
1: little mix and like her Jesse's on her own and she like her and Nikki release this song and there was just a lot of like it just scene like she's not black but 100% is are the vibes that she's giving off and then like mm-hmm. there was just some drama between members and other people just a lot going on there and that happens in entertainment a lot I feel mm-hmm. because specifically like people are like oh great like there's so many talented you multiracial artists, black artists who do this, this, this and have succeeded in this way. And suddenly it's like, OK, this person, this white person who was white passing seven years ago, five years ago, three years ago, just looks very different. And it's giving off a very different vibe in all of these mm-hmm. videos. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's just so, so interesting to watch. Like, yeah. I've seen it a lot more recently.
2: Oh, for sure. I agree with you, Nathaniel. I've seen it a lot as well. And I think, um, Sarah, the point that you made about, like, this um, exotification factor, I think, is something – I don't know if this was in the study that you all read or not, but um, that's actually something that's been expressed by multiracial women of color in particular. That's a common, like, lived experience Mm -hmm. in the research is around, like – and, like, there's this, like – there's this fetishization of, like, mixed babies. Like, people are, like, really into – for what reason? Not unclear, but it's really interesting because – I remember, like, as a kid, like, growing up, people would be like, you're so pretty, like, because you're mixed or whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, like, nice, but why does it feel weird? And I remember not mm. understanding, like, why it didn't feel – like, it was this, like, incongruency of, like, they're giving me a compliment, but it doesn't – it's something's wrong. Does You know what I mean? And I still feel that way now sometimes.
0: I feel like the only – I mean, obviously, I haven't had that experience at all, but, like, I feel like maybe it's, like – The compliment is it comes across as you are so beautiful despite Mm, your mm -hmm. minoritized identities or despite the fact that you're not white, you're still so beautiful. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Right. And like that is fucked up. Right. Exactly. You know, like, I mean, I'm not sure if that's how it feels or if that's the intention, but I can from like, like just trying to process what that might be like, that's that's how I would potentially categorize it. Right. Yeah.
1: It, it feels weird, Lisa. I, I feel like I've had the same experiences or been around the same kind of conversations where someone will, like, proclaim, like, oh, like, they would make beautiful babies and it's just <sighs> so strange and it's always, yeah. like, a a mixed situation yeah. and I'm like, hmm, but why? Though? <laughs> no, it's like,
2: so weird. I think
1: it's the what weirdest. What is that? And I don't think people think about it. Like, I feel like people say it, but like, what is, <laughs> I, like, where does that even stem from? Like, if you're, like, even if you're just, you've never thought about it and you're young, and there's something about a mixed baby that makes you really, really want to be like, oh my gosh, please. Right. Like I I don't know how to unpack that one. Like that one is, is it's uncomfy for I sure. I think it's
2: the weirdest thing yeah. ever. I'm like, okay, this is just strange, but I think it's a symptom of mono racism as well, if I'm being honest. I, but yeah.
1: the Asian I feel like the Asian community gets that a ton as well.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a certain exotification with it. And I think it's Very like much so in the Asian American community that's strongly connected to the model minority myth, which is then mm. again, it's another tool like when you think about all these things, this is why I think it's important to To look at the historical context and legacy like when you think about like I don't remember who the person was but there was like this article I was reading or maybe it was another podcast I listened to for class but the person who like coined the term model minority was actually a white person and like when you think about it it's actually like used again as another tool to pit the communities against one another like they're like oh if they're too busy fighting each other they won't fight us you know what I mean and like I think it's important to recognize the differences and how people are racialized and like they're different for sure and also I think especially like this last year like with the increased attention to Asian American violence in this country the model minority myth was always used as like a crutch and then there's like as an Asian American mixed person there's always this like guilt of like oh am I really oppressed and like that's not what we should be thinking about we should be thinking about I think Nathaniel, used the term interconnected earlier, which I think is really interesting because um, there's this um, theory, like, Remember how I was saying post-structural feminism? There's a theory called interconnectivity that was put forth by a woman of color named Annalise Keating. And interconnectivity is about – she calls it an extension of intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw, which is – it's around like radical interrelatedness and what it means to recognize the similarities and the differences across minoritized groups and then like listen with a raw openness and like recognize that, yeah, these – like you can say these experiences are different because they are and how can you like connect to again I'm going back to like disrupting the systems of power because when we work together and recognize our differences and like not essentialize and recognize that and honor the individualized experience of every minoritized group while also engaging in solidarity I think that that, that if you were to ask me what I think is the best path forward that's my answer that's the best path forward mm. and is it going to fix everything tomorrow no but I'm going to continue to engage critical hope because I found that when I stay in that like, place of sadness, then I don't do anything. And I can't stay there anymore. I'm done.
0: I love that.
1: We, I, we talked about this, and I, re- I remember you saying that before. Mm-hmm. And that's very relatable, generally, because obviously with topics such as this and with a lot of other things that are going on, it can be difficult to keep having hope with so many things that need to be disrupted and changed at the same time. And we know it's a process. We know it's going to take a while to, you know, break down some of these systems so that people don't have to feel horrible all the time. But when you look at it as a whole and it looks like a very daunting task, it can be easy to get discouraged. But if you are like bit by bit doing this work and being passionate about something and, and trying to change things where you can it's a it's a realistic form of optimism i feel
0: yeah
2: i like that um, i like that a lot because it's not to negate that there are going to be days that are hard it's not to negate the, oppre- the yeah. very real oppression that people with minoritized identities experience every day and i think it's okay like i'm gonna say this like if you're there and you want to stay there i'm i get it <laughs> like i've been there too like if you if you're not ready for hope i get that if you are i'm here i'm here
0: I love this so much. I'm just like in awe of your ability to just conceptualize and describe all of these things and, and do it so eloquently. And I think that this is going to come across really well to everyone out there listening. So folks, give Lisa some love and uh, feel free to share your thoughts and experiences because I'm really interested to see how this conversation continues and how we continue to grow and, and build and keep learning when it comes to race and racial identities and all of the interconnectedness of it all well
2: thanks y'all thank you both for having me
1: once again big thank you to lisa i think um, this was very very informative great conversation that can take place from this but thank you so much for listening as always please share your thoughts with us text i haven't gotten an email in a while Maybe, maybe we can email about this, too. Um, and we will be engaging on social media as well. But great episode. And we are excited to see you next time.
0: Bye, y'all. Bye.